guest is Glenn Weil. And uh, Glenn has quite an impressive biography. His website, by the way, is glennweil.com. He's a principal researcher at Microsoft Research New England, whose work aims to use technology and economics to find new ways to organize societies and reduce inequality, increase productivity, and ease political tensions. He is also the author of the book, Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society. Glenn, thanks for joining me. My pleasure to be here with you, Chuck. All right. Uh, Glenn, I want to talk a little bit about some of the um, issues, some of the hypotheses you present in your book here um, about uh, uprooting capitalism. First of all, I mean, are you suggesting that capitalism be changed or uh, somehow uprooted? And if so, what would what would you uh, suggest uh, replace replace that system? Well, everybody right. thinks that capitalism and free markets are the same thing. Mm -hmm. But that's a relatively new idea. Actually, in the 19th century, a lot of people thought that capitalism, private property, um, and a lot of the ways that we organize our democracy were inconsistent with having really free, uh, competitive, effective markets. And what my book is about is sort of reviving that set of ideas and updating it for the present age, thinking about ways in which we can actually have freer markets through, for example, partial common ownership of property through a voting system that incorporates a market mechanism that lets people trade their influence on different things uh, and so forth. So it's a radically free market book, but not one that's very tied to existing institutions. And yet maybe this is conventional on my part, but is not uh, a free market based upon the principle of private ownership private ownership of property, of the means of production, uh, of, um, of the purchasing of the right to purchase entities as the basis of trading goods and services. I mean, isn't that what, isn't that something that's natural? It's actually natural to human beings. It's natural to us as a, as a people. Well, that's an interesting uh, supposition that we have in our present society. But it's one that is not actually historically that common throughout human history. Markets have often been decoupled from uh, private ownership. And let me just give you a little thought experiment to illustrate that. Imagine that all the major private property, all the buildings, all the uh, airplanes, you know, major parks, things like this, were continually up for auction to the highest bidder. And that that bidder could hold on to that as long as she was willing to surrender that asset to anyone who came along and outbid her and paid that highest bid in a monthly rental payment into a common pool. That is, that is about as radically of a free market system as you can possibly get. Everything has a price on it. Everything is constantly competed for. Everything is available for uh, entrepreneurship and innovation. And in fact, it's much more free market than our current society, where this building that I'm calling you from, if someone had a better use for it than I have, or than my company has, they'd have to go into some long drawn out negotiation process. Whereas if there was an auction constantly, it would be much easier, much more free market. But in that system, there is no private property, because nobody actually owns the things. They're only sort of renting them in some sense through this auction process from uh, everyone more broadly. Well, well, it seems to me that if, if your system, the auction system is put in place, that removes the ability of the individual and the company 
to have a choice. I mean, obviously everything in probably in existence can have a price put on it if it is put on the market uh, and and offered as a, um, a service or as a product, but not everything is put on the market because some people don't choose to put something on the market. So if the building that you're in right now, the company that you're working for wants to continue owning that building, they don't have to put it on the market. And um, But what you're suggesting is that through a system, I suppose, and correct me if I'm wrong, of auction, that the property would constantly be on the market and it would be up for the highest bidder. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is I'm not, let's leave aside for the moment, whether that's a good or a bad system. We can come back to that later. All that I'm pointing out is that that would be about as free market of a system as you can possibly get much more than our present system, because things would be much more dynamically available. You know, there would be much more presence of markets in the world. And yet at the same time, it wouldn't have any private property. So that's not to say that it's a better system. I'll, I'll argue why I think it's a better system, but it is to say that we can have a free market system, even a radically free market system without any private ownership. Well, I would take issue with that as being a free market system because the free market doesn't exist in some kind of a vacuum. The free market is based upon the free will of individuals to engage in or not engage in the trade of goods and services. So if people, you know, you know, and, and there's, there's bigger issues with capitalism than even that. I mean, there's also a spiritual component and an ethical component to capitalism that I think was removed in the 18th century by Adam Smith, unfortunately, as a as an in, in un, unintended byproduct of his separating economics as a discipline from its original home, which was with the with the church and with um, a spiritual understanding of the human being. But it seems to me that um, th the market is based upon the free choice of citizens, of people who own and have the right to own. And that to take that away and to put everything up for auction, that that's not free market. I mean, that's, you know, to me, that's in a sense, a form of public ownership because the highest bidder is going to own everything. It is a form of public ownership, but it is a market. So that's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say something can be a market without being uh, private property. That's the point. Well, sure, it can be a market. I mean, communism has a market. Is this no, no, it doesn't. Problem. Communism doesn't have markets. They have central planning. Well, that's I mean, this, the my system, well, the whole my system has no central planning. That's the thing. Okay. The system I'm describing is completely decentralized. So it's, it's, you know, in communism, there is no decentralization. Everything is centrally planned by a single individual or a small group of people. My right. system is radically decentralized. So the standard Hayekian or, uh, you know, other objections to central planning don't apply to the system I'm describing. I'm not saying that there aren't reasons you should object to what I'm saying, and we should talk about those, but I'm just saying that the, it breaks apart the notion that there's that a market is the same as a uh, as private ownership. Uh, what I would suggest is that what you're saying here would really not be private ownership, and it would therefore... No, it wouldn't. Yeah, and it would therefore, in a de facto sense, not be a free market because the freedom to engage in transactions would be compromised by some kind of a... Um, I don't know if I'd use the word radical. I mean, I guess you use the word radical in your book, right? <laughs> um, you know, transformation of, of the concept of, of private ownership, which, by the way, I mean, the idea of ownership of property is something that 
exists in nature. I mean, animals understand this. Plants understand it. I mean, it's, you know, try to interrupt a bird's nest and you'll find out what happens. Try to get in the space of a dog and you'll find out what happens. Well, in, in fact, if you, if, if you look throughout, you know, human history, during most of human history, we haven't had private property. Agreed. I mean, private property is, is a, a reasonably new institution within human history. So the idea that it's just entirely natural that there should be absolute private property is it's you know it's a it's something that really comes out of you know the enlightenment and so forth it's not something that's some ancient historical institution it 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 really begins with agriculture and it becomes you know stronger towards the enlightenment but it's not uh an absolute and it's something that hasn't changed in many ways in in, in many societies well, the point i was just trying to make is that a, fr a free market where people have choice can be based on an auction system rather than giving people absolute ownership rights in the things that they have. And in fact, we know that because we've seen that, for example, on the internet. The way that ads are sold on Facebook and Google is through a competitive market, but not one based on ownership of those ad slots by the people who bid for them. They just bid for them, and then they might lose them the next moment. Well, the, ad, the, the ads are ultimately owned by Facebook, just like a newspaper owns it's it's entity and then you 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 when you buy an ad from them you're engaging in a transaction and you're renting that space in a contract i mean the whole idea in modern sense of of ownership involves contracts and you're right to say that historically there hasn't been private property i would suggest that the development of the concept of private property is one of the great progressive movements you know in ancient times there was no conception of it everything was owned by the the king or by the the idol I mean, if you look at the, the Bible, you, you know, you can see that they were beginning the process of developing private ownership and property slowly and carefully. But as man progressed, we eventually realized that this was the most freeing institution and the basis of freedom. And that idea was blossomed to its ultimate with the foundation of the United States. So, you know, it hasn't always existed. That doesn't mean it's not natural. It is natural. But it's it's been it's taken mankind millennia to develop it to realize its power and to put in place a means by which we as individuals can own property and that doesn't mean that we own it in an unfettered way that's as false an idea as communism is because obviously we have to live with other people so i mean my ownership of property my ownership of land doesn't mean i could build a garbage dump in my backyard you know i mean it's a because they have other people's property checking my rights. It's like a system of checks and balances. So to my way of thinking, it's a very progressive system. And it's one that does reflect the better aspects of nature. Well, so let, let, let me try to explain to you now that we've clarified the distinction between markets and property, why I think that having something that's not private property might be superior. Okay. Does that seem right? Yeah. So the, the, the reason is that Private property often leads to what's often called a holdout problem, where uh, people can stand in the way of a better use of the same resources. So let me give you an example. Uh, you and I right now are talking to people over the internet, not over broadcast television. Right. Um, broadcast television, broadcast radio have steadily declined in the uh, listenership, at least delivered via the airwaves, right? And people want to use those airwaves instead as a way to get Wi-Fi, as a way to get 5G services, etc. 
However, there's all sorts of people, television stations and radio stations, which got licenses to that spectrum rights, the right to use a portion of the electromagnetic spectrum and have been basically sitting on that for years doing almost nothing. Many of them are just running reruns on constant loop so they don't lose their rights. Um, now, the problem is that if you want to come along and you want to make 5G or you want to make um, or you want to make Wi-Fi, you need to get a chunk of that spectrum. It needs to cut across many different bands. It needs to have a wide geographic area. That's just the way the technology works. But the problem is because it's fragmented into all these little television stations. They're not able to achieve that. And they could go and try to bargain with all of these guys. But of course, you know, the Wi-Fi is worth way more than this other application is. And therefore, people are going to try to hold out for some enormous price in order to try to transfer it to these more efficient potential uses. To try to address that problem, the government, in a very centralized way, over the course of eight years, with a lot of legislation, held an extremely elaborate auction process, which ended up, for the antitrust reasons we were talking about before the broadcast, getting completely manipulated by the um, some private equity funds. It didn't end up working. The whole thing sort of fell apart. And now we're still stuck with some of the worst 5G and, uh, and Wi-Fi coverage of any developed country because of the absolute right to the, um, of, because of the absolute right to the spectrum. So instead, we could have a system of private, uh, of partial private ownership where they can hold on to their licenses for a period, but only if they pay a, a, a price and that they have to stand ready to sell those rights to someone who's willing to pay more for them than that. And that system gives them some control. It allows a market to determine. It doesn't have any central planning. It's determined completely by market process, but it's much more dynamic and fluid and allows for better updating of technology than does a rigid system based on absolute private ownership. Well, well. First of all, my understanding is that the uh, that the the broadband is is part of the public domain and that it's it's leased to uh, these companies. So, you know, like a lot of things, the public has some say in how they function. Um, yeah, that, that's. I mean, I'm not. You know, the, the whole idea of absolute private ownership at the exclusion of society. That's as I say. That's as false an idea as communism is. It's not. You know, we we are. In the world, I mean, we we don't we have to answer to to other forces as part of responsible ownership. But having said that, I would suggest that um, you, the very program we're doing right now, where I lease this space to a a contract from Facebook, actually Be Live TV, I pay for a subscription, which gives me access to doing this show. This is an end run around that system. Uh, this is a way that. Um, you know, you can create your own television show. You can create your own television network, and people are doing it, not just me. A lot of people are doing it. So, you know, if you have a free market and you have, um, you know, ownership or, or leasing of, of an entity, in this case, Facebook, th then you're going to find a way around that. Well, I mean, as we saw with the Spectrum example, I'm not saying you won't eventually find a way around it, but we're now fi 15 years behind countries like Israel and Australia, which had much more fluid ownership of the spectrum and have managed to allocate it. You go and look at the way that Wi-Fi works there, the way that 5G works there, they're ages ahead of us because they didn't have this rigid control of the spectrum. And what I'm advocating is not you know, doing away with any 
ownership rights. What I'm advocating is, as you just said, that we have a responsible system of property where people can continue to enjoy the stability and whatever, as long as they are open to the new uses of their products in a way that allows a more fluid and dynamic economy. Okay. I mean, I'd only add that um, I don't think it's quite accurate to compare the United States to Israel or to Australia. Israel is about the same size as Massachusetts, and it has about the same population. And so in Australia, maybe, I don't know, three New England states. I'm just saying the United States is much bigger, much more complex than that. And in a way, what you're suggesting might augur toward an argument for a decentralized you know, state control over these matters. But I want to go on yeah. to another subject on your book. Uh, yeah, please. And that is the business of, um, you seem to be proposing a new means for voting that is different than the system we have now, which is Absolutely. the sanctity of one person, one vote. Right. Uh, what would that be, and how can that protect the um, the sacred right of the American citizen to have their vote counted fully? So um, the problem with one person, one vote is not that it gives everyone equal votes. That's incredibly important. I strongly support that. The problem is that it gives people no opportunity to trade with each other. Some issues are very important to me, other issues might be very important to you, and different issues might be very important to the people down the street from me. In the American system, and in, in most democratic systems, everyone gets one vote on every election, every issue, regardless of how important it is to them. What I prefer is a system where you get a budget of voice credits that you can spread across different issues so that you can choose what's most important to you and what's least important to you and how you want to allocate that. That is the principle behind my system. It has some more details that I'm happy to go into, but the basic idea is an equal budget rather than an equality on every single vote. Well, how would that translate in terms of voting for congressmen, voting for state legislators, voting for governors, voting for presidents? So the principle is that um, if you, so imagine there's, let's say, five people running for Congress in your district. Right. right now we have primaries, we narrow it down to two or maybe three of them, something like that. And then we have a runoff and every person gets one vote. Under my system instead, there would be a budget that you'd have starting at the age of 18 or whatever, that you would have some voice credits. And you could spend these voice credits on all the different elections that arise, right? And those elections might be um, uh, local, they might be state, et cetera. And when those five Congress people come up, you could buy as many votes in favor of that congressman or against them as you want. And uh, the amount that you would pay out of your credits would be the square of the number of votes that you buy. So if you get one vote in favor of the congressman, you, get one, you pay one credit. If you get two, you pay four. If you get three, you pay nine. Or you could vote against them if you really don't like them. And the congressperson that would win, the candidate that would win, is the one that has the greatest votes on net. So when you cancel out the positives and negatives, the one that has the most votes. There's a lot of advantages of that system. It would make sure that you never have one of these races like we just went through, where almost everyone hates both of the candidates, and yet they're both in there because everyone's afraid of the other one. Um, because if everyone disliked a candidate on net, the candidate would sink down and would allow anybody to come in and beat them. So it would offer opportunities for it not just to be some party infrastructure that determines things, but the overall will of the people.
Well, I mean, a lot of things come to mind right off the bat, and I haven't studied this, but um, what happens if you expound, if you spend all your credits because you feel passionate about a particular issue on a particular election, and then next time around you have nothing? Um, so the, you know, obviously, like in any market system, we have to rely on people who are free to also be responsible. There's no freedom without responsibility. And uh, by giving people the freedom to choose how they want to allocate their credits, we, they also take the responsibility to use that in a thoughtful way. Now, that responsibility wouldn't be 100% on them. You know, there would be equivalent of a so social safety net because every year people would get additional credits. But yes, we allow people some freedom to save things up. And that freedom is also the freedom to spend things on the things that are most important to them. And, you know, I think that that sort of freedom is just fundamental to my value system, you know, giving people the choice rather than assuming that they're going to do something irresponsible with their choice. And if they do do something irresponsible, ensuring that there's some backstop protecting them, but that basically they can bear the consequences of their actions. And would this system be available to citizens or would um, how would it be determined as to who would qualify as a participant in the in the system? So I think that the way that I, I would do it is that the moment that you're born, you would start accruing voice credits every year, uh, even if you're not yet of age that you're able to vote. So when you if you're a citizen and you reach, you know, voting age, you're going to have a lot of voice credits. And so you'll have a lot of ability to vote. Other people who are in the country only temporarily, um, uh, but legally, would start accruing voice credits only for the time they were in the country. So, you know, someone at the age of 18 would have 18 times the credits that someone who uh, had lived in the country for two years uh, would have, for example. Interesting. I mean, a, a, a good friend of mine, the late Dr. Samuel Blumenfeld, he once proposed that every child born in this country or naturalized in this country, that the government put, I think he said $1,000 into an interest-bearing savings account in lieu of Social Security. That's called baby bonds. Yeah. There you go. And that the the accumulated compound interest, by the time they retire at 65, they would have a considerable nest egg and they would not have had to pay into a social security system, which means that throughout their life, working life, they'd be able to keep that income and, uh, and, and, and improve their life as they go. So, yeah, it sounds a little bit like that. And it's actually a pretty interesting. But for voting. Idea. Yeah. But I mean, for yeah, voting. I agree. I mean, it, it actually sounds like something. I mean, I'm not here to endorse it, but yeah. it certainly does sound like an interesting idea. I'm just well, and, the, and, you know, relating to the issue of citizenship, it seems to me that it's a good way to sort of capture our intuitions about why immigrants shouldn't have the same weight in de decisions that native-born citizens have, because native-born citizens have been here a lot longer. But on the other hand, it eliminates the thing that suddenly you become a citizen and then you have exactly the same vote as everyone else. And the moment before that, you have no vote, which doesn't really make sense either. You know what I mean? I don't know about that. I actually think that that does make sense. If a person mm. becomes a citizen, and that's not an easy process, then they should have absolute equal voting to anybody who's been here all their life. The question is, uh, you know, the process of becoming a citizen is something that needs to it's be contentious. It's yeah. contentious and it needs to be reformed. I would actually be somewhat liberal on that in that there are a lot of people who ought to be able to become citizens who have to wait an inordinate amount of time to get to that point. So that's another issue. But um, once someone's a citizen, I tend to think that it's it, it should be an equal vote 
And if you think it's going to reduce the phenomena of having to vote for people we don't like, I mean, I'm not sure about that. I mean, it's yeah. a, you know, you want to have a winner-take-all system where somebody who gets one vote more than the other person, they're elected and they're in office. Um, you know, otherwise we'll go to a more parliamentary system, which I suppose works in some countries, but I think our system works pretty well here. Well, I think the difficulty with a winner-take-all system is that if the government ends up going in a really bad direction, the only choice is impeachment. Whereas in a parliamentary system, if something bad starts happening with the government, there's ways that are easier to have a no-confidence vote and to you know reorganize the government. Um, and I think that that can make things a little bit less, um, uh, you know, volatile, let's say. Understood. Although I think that with this republic, which is so vast and so complicated, yeah. the, um, the impeachment system is, is a better one because we don't want to have a, a, a government that's constantly going to be changing on, on whim or on, on mistake. It's much better to have a strong government in place for a set period of time as delineated by the constitution. You know, it's, uh, you know, maybe uh, that type of system might work in the States, I suppose, but yet the States traditionally imitate the federal government. Anyways, uh, Glenn, what else are you working on over there? Well, so uh, uh, we have a alternative system of organizing migration uh, that we propose in the book as well. So, should we talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that at present, you know, migrants come in and the ma main people who benefit from migration are either the migrants themselves or the people who employ them, who are usually wealthier corporations, things like this. Mm -hmm. We want a system where ordinary working class Americans can directly benefit from migrants coming to the country. Um, and the idea would be that every individual citizen would have a right to sponsor migrants. Um, and only individual citizens would have the right to sponsor migrants. So if someone wanted to go work for Google, they'd have to find an individual at Google or somewhere in that area who would sponsor them uh, as a migrant. And as a sponsor, you could negotiate for a share of the benefits that the migrant gets from coming to work in the country so that every individual citizen would see a benefit on their bottom line and have personal interactions with migrants and could support them in adapting to American institutions and so forth. So um, that's, that's our idea for migration because we think on the one hand, it could dramatically expand migration. Many more people would have the ability to sponsor migrants, but on the other hand, rather than all the benefits accruing to coastal elites or to the migrants themselves, they would accrue to the working class of the country. What you're describing is a version of the American immigration system that existed before 1965 and the, uh, the Kennedy immigration change, which turned it into a lottery system and a chain migration system. Before that, it was a system by which the migrant would have to have a sponsor. The sponsor could be an individual or it could be a company. And as part of that sponsorship, that individual or company would take responsibility for that immigrant for three years. In other words, they wouldn't get welfare for three years. They would get, they would have to be gainfully employed and that the sponsor would support them if they couldn't be gainfully employed. Yeah. And then after the three year period, they get citizenship. Um, I, I think that that is a very good system. Even having said that, ultimately, 
the federal government has a say on who and how many people immigrate into this country, just like any sovereign nation has a say on that. That's just, um, you know, that's a basic function of any sovereign nation. You decide who comes into the national home, just like you and I decide who comes into our personal home, except in this case, the federal government acts is sort of in proxy and decides these questions. Yeah, I mean, I would prefer that to be somewhat more decentralized. So I would prefer for every citizen, yeah, I, obviously the government has to put some limit on it. It can't be unlimited. But I would prefer for there to be more power to decide that in the hands of individuals and localities and somewhat less in the hands of just the federal government. So for example, the federal government might enforce a playing field set of rules saying that migrants who migrate, say, to one state or one locality could not travel to another locality uh, without you know, support from their sponsor or their sponsor being along with them or something like that. Whereas, um, but the localities could decide how many migrants they wanted to have in that area. So I, I would support having more devolution of that authority to allow more competition and experimentation across areas within the country to determine which system is likely to benefit the development of those areas. I might agree with that to an extent, although I think that um, if you have the sponsorship program in place and that people are literally sponsored, like my great-grandmother yeah. was sponsoring people to come yeah. into this country from, from Russia, yeah. Um, the, at the same time, the federal government obviously has a say in terms of making sure that someone coming in is not a terrorist. Oh, or, of course, of course. No, no that, question about that. And that they're willing to, you know, swear an oath of allegiance to the United States. And Absolutely. Coming in as Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And that ultimately it, it, there's a population issue as well, you know, and there's an economic component to it in that, um, you have to ask the question of whether or not the economy can sustain or absorb a number of people, because if you have more people than the economy can absorb, then that's going to yeah. hurt the value of labor. And well, I, so that that all that is obviously true, but along the economic dimension, this system, because it would be individual sponsorship, and there could be that where you could actually receive compensation for sponsoring the migrant, um, it would have a direct benefit to labor as well as any potential indirect effect of a, of impacting wages. And so that I think could, could make it a very attractive proposition for many working class people. Right. Excellent. And interesting to think about, you brought a lot to the table, obviously about uh, on ideas to, to consider. And uh, I kind of want to wrap it up by getting into a little bit of what we talked about in the green room before. That'd we be great. Room. Yeah. And that is the business of um, conservatives are concerned about shadow banning on the part of Google and Facebook yeah. and Twitter specifically, even though President Trump obviously makes a, a makes okay with Twitter. We get that. But you can't ban him because he's the president. But, you know, th there's all this stuff about that I hear. And, and also congressional testimony apparently bears some of this out that um, – the people who are the gatekeepers at Facebook and Twitter and Google tend to be, as you say, you know, younger people, millennials who tend to be left of center, tend to be liberals. And that uh, you get these old conservative guys like me trying to do an, uh, an Internet show. And we find that um, we might not be growing as much as we would if, if, if we were left alone. So the question is, is it is this happening? Are people, our conservative opinions uh, being not banned, 
but shadow banned. I mean, sort of semi-banned. I mean, put into the netherworld, as it were, so that they're not seen as much. I mean, look, I, th I think the answer to that question is very complicated and it's evolving very rapidly over time because the way that these internet giants enforce their policies is algorithmic and they're constantly changing the algorithms. And I don't think that literally being a conservative is being used as a criterion in any of these algorithms, but that doesn't mean it's a neutral set of criteria either. They may be construing things or flagging words or flagging phrases that are associated with the views of one side or another, or even at a more abstract level than that, they may be looking at the reactions that people are having within certain contexts and upweighting or downweighting things within that in a way that is not fair across the, the, the sides. But, but of course, there's people on the left who have similar responses, maybe not to the same issues you're talking about. For example, they might think that certain content is hateful and should be banned. People on the right, on the other hand, might think that certain content is pornographic and should be banned. Ultimately, these are contentious issues that our society has fought about many times in the past. And we usually try to have the legislature, the Supreme Court, et cetera, deal with these issues. The problem right now is because we've allowed so much power to accumulate in the hands of so few corporate entities, it's guys in t-shirts in Silicon Valley who are figuring this out rather than people in robes or suits in, in the Capitol. And um, I, I mean, my, my suggestion maybe seems very liberal, I suppose, but that is to bring back the, um, the trust busting of uh, Teddy Roosevelt and say, we're going to take Google and break it into seven pieces, just like what Roosevelt did to Standard Oil. So the problem is I'm not sure that that can work. The, pro the thing is that there isn't nearly as much economies of scale in the production of oil as there is in a social network because everyone wants to be on the same social network. Or if you think about Google, uh, it's like it's like if you tried to break up the electricity grid, that would be a disaster, right? It's yeah. like it, the whole point is it's one grid. So my feeling is that instead of that, we probably need um, to have a different layer lying underneath it, which manages community standards and data rather than just having individuals on the one hand and then these monolithic organizations that are controlling everything on top of it. So I think we need entrepreneurship, maybe the formation of something like a union or a consumer union or a cooperative or something that would, there would be a large number of these that would be competing with each other and that would be small enough so they don't become overwhelmingly powerful, but large enough so that they would have some bargaining power against Facebook and Google that could then manage this relationship and ensure that uh, there is a reasonable balance uh, and negotiating uh, on behalf of different interest groups within the society. Although I would point as an example, the breakup of Ma Bell in the 1990s led to a lot of competition among different telephone companies. And that combined with the development of certain technologies such as the uh, cell phone have led to a great reduction in the cost of telephones and have led to a great deal of competition between different companies. I think, I think that case is extremely unclear because we've ended up with a very, very, very concentrated telephone sector in the United States, one of the most concentrated in the world. 
Um, many of the European countries have much more competitive telephone sectors, so I'm not sure how successful that well, effort was really more was. More successful than the monopoly that existed under Mabel, where you that, had I, that that I would agree with. <laughs> it's a pretty it pretty low bar. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's yeah. what's there, and I think that that's what's becoming tech in the de facto sense. Not it's not a government utility, but that's almost what Google is. You can't be yeah. anywhere without Google. Right. You know, you right. if you don't have Google, then you're you just you're, you're vanished. So. I mean, I think it's worth considering the idea of multiple Googles and um, let them compete. People can be members of any and all of them if they want. But the fact is, if you have different gatekeepers who have different points of views and different biases managing each respective one, then it'll be a competition so, of ideas. Chuck, I think you and I basically agree, except that because of the just physical features of how Google works, I would prefer that to be a thin infrastructure layer and then all the competition and points of view you're talking about gets handled by these other smaller organizations which compete with each other and then have enough power to bargain with Google to ensure that their standards are enforced for their members uh, on the platform. That, that, that's, that's what I would prefer as, as a way of balancing out their power rather than sort of just breaking them up directly because I think that that would reduce the quality of the services involved too much. All right, Glenn Weil, I want to thank you for joining me today. The book is Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society. Glenn, do you want to mention any websites or anywhere people might be able to reach you and find out more about your work? Sure. If you check out my website, RadicalMarkets.com, uh, there's a lot of material there. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Glenn. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right.